From across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you for all for coming, mainly. Um, uh, I'm quite flattered that it's so full. Uh, it's not in American, uh, though I can't guarantee that it's in perfect English either, so uh, forgive me. And uh, if, you, if you hear me substituting T for D very occasionally, then please don't give me a hard time like my brother did the other night. Um, for those, I'll never start with an apology, but for those of you who've read the latest Royal Aerosoc magazine, okay, I do have to apologize. You're not here to listen to Paul Edwards, flight test engineer for the Augusta 109. I'm sorry, I'm only the test pilot, okay, for the 609 rather, I should say. Um, but that does mean that it'll be a much easier lecture to understand. Um, and on the positive side, as you heard, I am Welsh and not an Englishman, as they put in, in the article. So uh, that's definitely a good thing. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do completely what Shaky heard about in uh, California, because I think what you would like to hear is a little bit about the program as well and about some of the other testing we've done. Um, I did work at ETPS for a while, and I've tried to make it as interesting for those who are teaching to show that what we teach in ETPS is still as pertinent to something which is pretty cutting edge as it ever was. So that's what I intend to do. But uh, the way it always goes is we start with a video, so if you could run the video, please, Vass. You might hear me talk about Dan, my colleague, and Dan is the guy whose picture you see a lot of in the cockpit. This is in Dallas. There are no mountains or hills in Dallas. I didn't choose the music. Thank you. So, uh, Gusta Westland 609 used to be called BA 609 because it used to be a partnership between uh, Bell Helicopters and Augusta Westland. And that's primarily why I now live in Dallas because Bell Helicopters fly out of uh, an airport in Arlington, which is a, a suburb almost of Dallas. So, that's why I'm flying the aircraft out there. In 2011, uh, Augusta Westland bought out Bell. So, it's now a wholly owned. Uh, aircraft by Augusta Westland, programmed by Augusta Westland, and is called the AW609. Except if you're filing IFR in the States, in which case you have to call it the BA609 still. We just haven't got around to changing that. Uh, it's part of the product line. It's been uh, through a, a, a couple of project reviews, which happened after I took the job, which was an interesting time, um, but has got the full support now of Fimacanica, who, as you may know, own uh, Augusta Westland. And the idea is that we're pursuing certification, so airworthiness certification, with the FAA. Um, and that's primarily what I'm doing now. We just started FAA certification flying. Up until then, we were doing a lot of uh, envelope expansion and research and development flying. It's going to be certificated on the powered lift 
category. So what that means is it's neither airplane, to speak American, or helicopter. It's powered lift. So if you wanted to put a Harrier into a civil service, then you would have to do it on the powered lift, and we're going to do the same. And what that means is we've had to help the FAA write the certification basis. So that's been quite interesting um, as well. We took a lot of uh, FAR 25 and FAR 29, put them together, and where there were holes for things that we can do that aren't covered, we wrote our own paragraphs as well. So that's, that's the Bible as far as we're concerned. That's the objective, and we're hoping to get there, get it, start selling it by the end of 2017, get it certificated by the end of 2017. Uh, that's roughly the size, so I can't guarantee it's to scale, but I tried as hard as I could. So if you're familiar with the 139, that's about as big as it is. Two pilots, maximum of nine people in the back. 26-foot prop rotors. We call them prop rotors because they're both props and rotors. Um, powered lift has started in the 50s. It's been around a long time. The Harrier is powered lift. Uh, the reason we're going with the FAA is because the V-22 uh, has provided a foundation of experience in the tilt rotor area, which we can use. If we try to do this in Europe, then there wouldn't be many tilt rotor uh, people hanging around working for EASA, but they are working for the FAA. So that's primarily why we're out in the States. In the 50s, lots of people tried those pictures that you can see around the screen, uh, uh, some, of the, some of the avenues that were taken to try and make powered lift work. Not many of them did work. Then it was very much military-based. Uh, the objective was a military objective to avoid runways, and hence the Harrier. Nowadays, it's the, certainly the commercial side is all about reducing air, commercial air traffic density by going point to point. There are many ways that's being done, but one of, one of the ways people see is by using this, not, not requiring runways. I'd lie if I said it had been an easy childhood for the aircraft, those of you who followed the aircraft, um, and I know some people may have worked on the project in the past here. Um, it has gone through a difficult upbringing. But the technology has really, the evolution of technology has really allowed us to, to get to where we are now, where we think we've got a, we, we can certificate it. Um, and that's, that's what we're using even now. And the reason we've been doing research and development right up until now, and we're kind of overlapping research and development with certification, which you could argue is not a good idea, but we're doing it anyway, is because technology is still catching up. And I hope that I'll be able to cover a few of those elements as we go through this evening and talk about how technology is helping us. The, the childhood has, has helped in that this, the aircraft I fly has been flying since 2002, um, which is a long time for a, an aircraft that was designed to last for five years. Uh, but it, does, it has helped us because we've got a huge amount of data which we can fall back on when we need to. Uh, this is why uh, Finn Mechanica believe it's, uh, uh, and Augusta Westland Headshed believe it's a great thing to do. Um, it's, it goes faster, everyone knows that, but with faster, it also goes higher. So we're pressurized, we can get up to 25,000 feet. And you go faster and higher, and what you get then is further. So you can go far further than a helicopter, and you can go above the weather, as the bottom right of the screen is showing there. And that's really what we're aiming for. Now, it doesn't go as fast as a King Air. If you are going from point A to point B, 700 miles, and both A and B have a runway, you're going to buy a turboprop or even a bizjet. 
and that's fine. But if either A or B don't, do not have a runway, then tilt rotor is definitely an option because it obviously can stop, as you can see from the chart. Just rough specifications. We're pressurized cabin, as I said. So 25,000 feet is service ceiling, uh, dual pilot. So transport category design standards. Remember I said we're going FAR 25 and FAR 29. For performance, we, we've been told we have to use FAR 25. So category A, class one, class two performance is verboten uh, phraseology. We have to call it transport category, V1, VR, V2. But for any of the helicopter guys here who've, used, who've done Cat A, it'll look very much like Cat A when I come to cover it in a minute. Uh, we're going to have a, a complete icing um, set of equipment, so we can find a known icing, very much falling back on uh, EH-101 icing tests that were done, and it's got a very similar system in many areas to the 101, for those of you who did 101 icing. Um, and that's about it, really. The 25,000 foot I've covered already. 275 knots is probably a target rather than actually achieved yet, but we're getting there with some funky technology, is what they tell me to say. Um, and power plants, so two Pratt & Whitney PT6s, which is a hugely reliable engine, same engine as the King Air that I used to fly when I was at Pax River, um, nearly 2,000 shaft horsepower. Uh, we have an OEI moving soft stop, which I'll talk about later on. In fact, it's really a, an all-power moving soft stop. We've got triple hy hydraulic systems, and they really are triplex hydraulics. So it's not two flight control systems and a, uh, and a backup. All three can power the flight controls, even if the other two have gone. We've got a myriad of um, power sources, and that's mainly because we've got three flight control computers. We're fly-by-wire, um, and all three flight control computers need to have three sources of power. And this was something that harks back to the V-22 when we wanted triplex triplex redundancy in everything that we had on the aircraft. We're flying a ProLine 21 cockpit at the moment in flight test. We will be testing uh, the Fusion cockpit um, probably this time next year, hopefully. Uh, that's a Rockwell Collins Fusion which uses synthetic vision. No cameras. It creates a picture of your surroundings from a database. So that's quite interesting. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, conversion system is a dual telescopic ball screw. So that, what that means is that one part of it stops for some reason. You've got enough to get the nacelles back at least halfway, which means they don't hit the ground when you land. Because if you try and land this as an, as an aeroplane, the prop rotors will hit the ground. And we do not have a rudder. And I'll come on to that in a minute. So I talked about the cockpit and the ProLine Fusion. There are going to be four prototypes at the moment. There's one in Dallas, Arlington Airport, which is the one I fly most of the time, if I'm not in Italy. Um, we've done a lot of envelope expansion on that and a lot of uh, vibration testing and all sorts of development. And we're now into certification with that aircraft. Aircraft 2 flies in Cascina Costa uh, near Milan in Italy by uh, Italian test pilots out there. That is moving now more into R&D. Uh, as we do the certification, because obviously they're in Italy and the FAA don't like sending people out to Italy to do the witnessing of certification testing. So they are going to focus more on the R&D while we do the certification testing. Aircraft 3 is being built in Cascina Costa and will do its proof flying there, but then almost immediately will be shipped to Philadelphia, 
which is when I move to Philadelphia, because we're going to move the whole US side of the program to Philly later in the year. And that will be the icing bird, along with a bunch of other things. So in December, hopefully before Christmas, Dan and I will be flying it up to Great Lakes, where we're going to fly behind the Hiss tanker, the Chinook that, um, that sprays supercooled water. And um, we're going to see whether, whether it flies with uh, lots of ice on it. Um, there'll be a few other things we do with Aircraft 3. And then, as I said, Aircraft 4 will come along with the new cockpit. And that will be the avionics test platform, also at Philadelphia. So I, I mentioned no rudder. Um, the reason is that we don't need one. The flight controls, as you can imagine, they have to be fly-by-wire because we have to fly as both a helicopter and an airplane. And we have to use different, uh, the same controls, the same inceptors, but we have to use different surfaces to achieve the same thing. So we have a center stick um, and pedals, and we have a power lever with a thumb wheel for nacelle control as you can see in that small box. We don't call it a cyclic stick, we call it a center stick, mainly because it doesn't always do cyclic control. And we call it a power lever, not a collective lever, because it doesn't always do collective control. So for instance, if you look at the pitch there, you can see that when we're a helicopter, or VTOL conversion mode as we call it, we're using longitudinal cyclic to control the pitch attitude of the aircraft. But when we're in airplane mode, then we're gonna use the elevator. And when we're halfway between, we're going to use a blend of both. Now, I know that there are some very clever mechanical mixing units out there, uh, but I challenge anyone to come up with one that would do that. So it's all fly-by-wire, and we've got some very clever flight, flight control engineers who have designed it, and we have leaned heavily on previous tilt rotor experience. In fact, the guy who's... Uh, who we, who, the go-to guy started his career on the Lunar Lander flight control system, so um, he's been around for a while. You look at the yaw at the bottom, you can see that in um, helicopter mode, we use differential longitudinal cyclic to control yaw, but in the air, we use differential collective to control yaw. So we can control yaw through, through differential collective. If we have an engine failure, which is why in, in a fixed wing you would normally want a rudder, we don't have a... a a single engine failure does not lead to a single prop rotor failure because we have a transmission shaft that runs through the wing, a bit like a Chinook turned sideways, if you will, which allows you to power both prop rotors from one engine. So the flight regime transition is, um, is, use, is controlled using the nacelle controller on the power lever that you can see. So it sits conveniently for your left thumb, Pushing forwards makes the nacelles go forward all the way to zero degrees. Zero degrees is, is that, and pulling it back makes them go to 90, actually to 95 if you, if you wish to go. So we can actually taxi backwards should you wish. And we can also decelerate on the runway using rearward 95 degree nacelle. Normally moving at three degrees per second with an emergency which is full aft of eight degrees per second. What's different from the V22 is that we have preset nacelle angles. So in the V-22, the US Marines will tell you you need to fly your approach at 60 degrees nacelle, and it will take you about 30 seconds of lots of little thumb movements to get exactly 60 degrees, because that's what your, your Marine Corps instructor wants you to do. We've gone away from 60 degrees. We actually fly at 50 degrees for various aerodynamic reasons. And once you're past 75 moving forwards, one more click goes from 75 to 50 automatically. 
and the uh, center stick moves to adjust for CG shift, CG shift and uh, thrust vector alteration. And all of that is FCS augmented. So we're stabilized in both attitude and rate with a bunch of other clever stuff that fades in and fades out as, as we're going. What, what we've tried to do is when it's an airplane, try and make it fly like an airplane. So it feels like me, for me, like a King Air. When it's in helicopter mode, it feels like a, a reasonably large helicopter. So any of the seeking drivers out there would feel right at home in it, okay? It can't roll as with huge agility because when you hang huge weights off the wingtip, you're dealing with the laws of physics and inertia, and that's why it hasn't got the roll agility that if you wanted it to be an attack aircraft, you might want, but that's not part of the roll. So roll agility is, is great for commercial flying, but it's certainly not something you're going to fling around very low level. It has conversion protection. So the bottom left there, you can see the yellow lines or maybe the orange lines. Are, are, the, are the corridor you have to stay in. It looks quite narrow, but actually it's not that difficult. It, you have a band on your airspeed indicator, and you just adjust as necessary to keep the aircraft within that corridor as the nacelles come forward. If you, if you uh, do something to the nacelles that means that they are gonna, they're going to drive the aircraft outside of that corridor, then the FCS will stop the nacelles moving. And it will wait for your airspeed to catch up. It will wait for the pilot to catch up and then it will carry on moving the nacelles. It will not proactively move the nacelles in an opposite direction, though. So that's all I'm going to cover about the aircraft. If anyone wants to know any more detail about it, I'm very willing to uh, discuss my baby at any time you wish, but maybe over a beer later. Uh, so moving on to what we've actually done with the air vehicle testing, we've now got about 1,200 hours and 300 ground run hours on the aircraft. Not all of that is, is me, and I've probably got about 300 hours on the aircraft. But as I said, it's been around for a long time, so we've got an awful lot of data which is helping us with the flight test program. We've done envelope expansion. It kind of happened in about three regimes, and I was only there for the, for the last one. But we've been up to 30,000 feet. We've been up to 293 knots equivalent. Uh, you can see the G there. And what I'm going to cover for the rest of this evening is the high-rated descent testing, vortex ring state, if you will, or the, the tendency to go there. Aeroelastic testing and aeroserverelastic testing. Excuse me. We'll talk about transport category um, performance testing, CAT A, if you will, and auto rotation, which is what Shaky was referring to earlier. And through all of that, I'll try and talk about the flight control uh, law software and the hardware to a certain extent that we are using to make all of this happen successfully. So, high rated descent testing. This was a, a big bet noir of the V22 program. Um, and everyone was worried about it. It reminded me of the days in the Black Hawk when everyone was worried about stabilator runaways. Uh, and when they actually looked at the data, they found that no one had actually died from a stabilator runaway on the Black Hawk. But a lot of people had died because they had pulled the power cir circuit breaker for the stabilator and then flown it fixed and weren't used to how it handled. Vortex Ring did, did crash one V-22 in the, in the west of the USA, but everything else basically was not down to that, and that only happened because the guy was trying to fly on a number two in a formation that ended up flying quite a, quite a steep approach. And you can, you can dig into the accident uh, report if you wish. But because it's a bet now the V-22, we were, we were told that we had to go there fairly quickly and try and kill the vortex ring is going to kill you um, sort of phrase that is used around here on, or 
in the aviation world on the B-22. So it, it's an interesting test to do because you've got to accurately measure low speed. How are you going to do that? Because you don't want to do it close to the ground, obviously. Um, and we eventually ended up using a laser optical air data system, which was an array of lasers hung on the side of the aircraft that was basically reflecting off dust in the air and using Doppler shift to, to figure out pretty low speeds. It took a while to get it um, installed and even longer to get it calibrated, but we eventually got there. What we found was that um, it's really not, not an issue. Well, you expect me to say that stood up here, but I'll show you some data in a minute. What we also found was the recovery technique is very easy. So those of you who've uh, never been close to vortex ring state in a helicopter, you basically have to put the cyclic stick into a position and hold it there until the thing flies itself out. The advantage with a tilt rotor is that you can just move the nacelle switch, move the, move the rotors to 75 without actually moving the, the airframe at all apart from the nacelles, and it immediately flies out of, out, out of that. And here's the data. So when you're looking at doing the test, the test here, where are you going to start? So the first thing you do is you go and look at all the previous data and you try and use that to create a model and then, and then you can do analysis on where you want to go. The three curves you can see that are sort of the round curves in the bottom left come from V20, published V22 data. So the green one is where we expected incipient vortex ring to be, so to start seeing the vortex ring develop. Now, in a, in a helicopter, it's often difficult. You get a little bit of vibration, and the increase in vibration is, is where you normally say to blogs, okay, that blogs, there's vortex ring, incipient, and recovering. Uh, in this thing, it's much easier to see because you get thrust fluctuations in, in the prop rotors, and you can, you can actually see the torque starting to, to minor torque shifts. And then the analysis basically then went to when you're almost when you're going to have got a 50% chance of seeing it, and then the last one, the red bottom curve, is when they expected it to definitely be in it. And we did all of those points that you can see. All those coloured squares are the points we did. Of course, with good build-up approach, incremental approach, we started top right with the blue ones going fast and not going down at all, um, and then we built up slowly. And out of all those test points that we did, the two blue squiggly lines you see with an with a open box are the two where they actually got, got a, um, a thrust roll-off, is what they call, call it. So the aircraft actually started to roll a little, and they recovered with 75 nacelle. And you can see that the, uh, in the slower one, it was noticed, what was noticeable was that the rate of descent increased. In the, in the faster one, what was noticeable was actually the aircraft actually started slowing down. Um, and driving itself more towards the vortex ring state. But those were the only two where it actually, we actually got it to happen. And in both cases, they recovered using 75 nacelle, but in both cases, the analysis shows that as long as you've got enough height below you, you don't get both prop rotors into vortex ring state at the same time. So the aircraft would have rolled and will fly itself out because it automatically rolls, and that's one way you can get a helicopter out of vortex ring state is to roll. So we decided that it really wasn't that much of an issue. You can see some, um, some black boxes there where we decided not to continue down towards the, uh, the red curved line at the bottom because really we'd achieved the aims. So again, going back to my ETPS time, only do as much data as you need to prove the point. And that, that, that was the case here. The result of proving the point was that whereas we were going to go for a vortex ring envelope, which is the solid black straight line 
um, plot there, we ended up going for the dotted line, which is much smaller. And we've now got a cockpit where we get a, an, uh, a warning, both an audio warning of sync rate and a flashing um, light which you are on a caption on the screen, which will give you rate of descent warning. Moving on to uh, aeroelastic stability testing and ASE. So we're stabilizing the aircraft by doing clever stuff with the prop rotors, as along with the um, elevator and, um, and flaperons. And the problem with that is if you're, you've got an issue with, stable, with stability, then in trying to cure it with the uh, control system, you could make it worse. So you not only have to look at aeroelastic stability, which is the airframe responding to the aerodynamic forces on it, you have to look at aeroserveroelastic, which is does, does the system make it more uh, divergent by trying to cope with what's going on? So we've done both of those. It's an interesting one because you, you always are taught that you try to use a control surface that is not involved in correcting it. Uh, but we can't do that in this aircraft. So we've, we've had to actually use the prop rotors to drive the uh, oscillations that we're looking for and then stop them and look at what happens after we stop them to make sure there's no tendency towards divergence. Uh, so we've gone out there and we've, uh, the co-pilot has an F-tip box that sits into seat. You program in magnitude, frequency, uh, duration for the sweep. And then you also can do a, a specific frequency, uh, 3, 2, 1, now. And sometimes nothing happens or you can't see anything happens. And sometimes you hit the resonant frequency of the pilot seat. Uh, I tell you what, if you think seeking nasal hair uh, frequency is, is something to behold, the... the the natural frequency of the 609 pilot seat is even more, especially when it goes into vertical. Um, so we created the bending moments, uh, and, and I'm going to just flick on to, uh, I'll show you some video clips which will show you the, the, the modes that we're really interested in. And that's really just covering what else we had to look at with the aircraft. So unlike a normal airplane where the wing is loaded throughout in, in, in uh, Helo helicopter mode, you can see that the lift is all derived on the wingtips. So the aeroserver elastic is very different when you're, when you're an aeroplane as opposed to a, to a helicopter. The nacelles obviously have a pivot point and an actuator, so they're not always as stiff as they could be. The wing is very stiff though, so you get that interaction of something that's not particularly stiff at the end of a 23% cord airfoil. Um, but when we're locked down, we, we are locked down. So we then, the nacelles become part of the rigid scheme of things. But they're not always locked down, of course. As you're moving forwards or backwards, they're just off the downstop. And we also had to deal with rotor wake on the wing. So I'm going to ask Bass to uh, play this a couple of times. I couldn't loop it, unfortunately. But this is the wing bending. So this is the one that you would probably first go to. And indeed, this is probably one of the most aggressive of the modes that we need to look at. So we would go out and we would do a frequency sweep to look at whether the modes happen in that, in that correct, in the, the frequencies that the, the analysts have looked at. And most of the time they're correct. And then we would go and do dwells where we just put one frequency into the input, uh, into the airframe, and then look at how it, how it uh, decays from the input. And if that's all fine, then we will go heavier and we would go faster, one or the other and see when we get to an end point. And at the moment, it's doing 
absolutely fine. So we've, we've gone through the whole envelope and uh, haven't got that many issues. So he's gone through them all there, um, and I don't know if you saw it, but that's wing torsion, which is the third one. And then there was the cord, which was the fore and aft. Moving on. Thanks, Vass. So I, I took out the VTOL conversion um, graph to, to save time, but we did cover the full envelope in VTOL conversion. More interestingly, in terms of lessons learned, is airplane mode, 25,000 feet. Um, in FAA airworthiness, you can get uh, credit for um, go going out to here by plotting these and effectively uh, forecasting, or dare I say, extrapolating. He says, looking at Andy Robinson. Um, to, to prove that the, uh, the, the graph of the divergence is not going to reach anything nasty by the time you get to the red dotted line. So we did all of those. The interesting point was that it's fine going at 25,000 feet and flying at 170 or uh, nearly 200 knots, but 200 knots, 220 is about limit at 25,000 feet. So how do you get to 243 uh, equivalent <coughs> airspeed and not go above 25,000 feet? Well, the answer is you can't because uh, it's laws of physics, unless you boosted the engines or something, I suppose. So we had to get clearance to go to 30,000 feet. And Augusta Weston were more than happy to do that. And the Bell people who still work with us said that's fine. But Pratt and Whitney weren't, as a matter of interest. They said, oh, hang on, this, the engine that you've got is very similar to all these other engines, but we're not sure that we can let you go to 30,000 feet. So we had to wait about two months before we eventually got to 30,000 feet so that we could dive down to achieve 243 and then shake the aircraft. Um, and that, those were interesting test points because 25,000 feet near DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth, you're mixing it with 737s and everything else that's flying in there. And uh, we were quite worried because we used to get a lot of comments on the, on the radio. The last thing you expect when you're a 737 driver turning finals in the DFW is to see a tilt rudder go flashing by you. Um, so it was interesting. So transport category testing, or Cat A testing. Um, I'll put a picture up here of, of what we call the run stand. So this was developed by Bell for both the V-22 and then for the 609. That's another reason we're staying in Dallas as long as we can, is because we want the ability to strap the aircraft down and pull full power on the ground. So these huge um, poles that you see uh, the mechanics working on here, they actually bolt onto the underneath of the wing so that I can sit there and pull maximum power and nothing will happen, we hope. Um, we can also put the prop rotors fully forwards and pull not maximum power, but actually uh, fly, fly the thing as an airplane and not go anywhere. And then we can shake the aircraft if we wish. We can do engine failures. We can do all sorts of things. Obviously, shaking the aircraft when you've got the thing strapped to the ground is not quite as effective. But there are reasons why we would do it, mainly to do with the prop rotor modes. So, but going back to transport category, we had to figure out methodology for testing transport category. Now, as I said, we, you, we, we're doing, calling it transport categories, we're using FAR 25. So we had to produce transport category performance charts, which look an awful lot like category A performance charts. And to do that, you've got to go out and fail an engine, and you've got to develop a profile for takeoff and landing, which will allow a critical engine failure at, at the critical point. Now, there's no critical engine on the, on the 609 because they're joined, as I said. 
but there is obviously critical points during, during takeoff and landing. So if you think of a helipad uh, profile, for those of you who've flown helipad profiles before, we're not going to have a V1 or um, we're going to have a takeoff decision point, a TDP, and we're going to have a landing decision point, an LDP, just like you would in a helicopter, but it's transport category. How are we going to do it? We're going to go out there and fail a lot of engines. Well, we're going to do some analysis first. We're going to, we've got a simulator that we can use, but we'd like to use the training mode, which is the way it's taught at ETPS, for instance, is uh, using the training mode to, to fail the engine. Problem with using the training mode is you're using the, the flight control computer to fail the engine. Does the engine fail in the same way when the computer is shutting it down as it would if it just broke and failed? And more to the point, does the good engine then respond in the same way when that engine is shut down? Because the, the way the engine shuts down also drives the way the other engine comes up and its transient behavior. So we did an awful lot of work on that run stand with full power applied, shutting the engine down in different ways, using the, the engine control lever and all sorts of other stuff. Pulling the fuel and seeing how the aircraft failed and how the other aircraft responded. And then we would tune the training mode to simulate that failure. And we got it almost right, but it, it actually challenged people for quite a few months. So we validated the OEI training mode with real engine failures. And then we went into the simulator to take a first cut at what profile we would use uh, to generate TDP and LDP heights and make sure that we were starting from a safe position. And then we went out and flew using the training mode now, not actually shutting the engine down. Maintaining um, all up mass as close as we could, so every 300 pounds we would taxi to the side of the taxiway and our ground crew would be loading 300 pounds of lead into the back of the aircraft to comp compensate for the fuel burning down. And then we did the standard build up and build down, which you would have seen in, in HV testing if you've ever done it, starting close to the ground or starting a long way away from the ground. It's not HV testing because you're, you're in a dynamic situation. HV, you just sit there in a the hover or in a forward airspeed. Here, you're going up or down. Um, but we used very similar methodology. And then you iterate the profiles to enhance performance and handling, trying to choose speeds which would work for a pilot. Um, and of course, the iteration is more complex than it might be in a helicopter because you've got this added dimension of what you do within the cells. Well, very quickly, it became clear that what you do within the cells is you, you, um, you get them to 75 degrees as quickly as possible because that's your stop. So uh, you move them forwards because then you're generating the forward speed you need to get to that, uh, that airspeed that every helicopter pilot knows is when the power kicks in and you can fly away. It's that's commonly known as translational lift over here. I had to change my phraseology for the, for the Americans. Um, the benefit in, in a helicopter, it's all to do with the airflow over the rotor blowing away the, the uh, induced air. The, the added benefit for the tilt rotor is that we have a performance penalty because of the downwash on the wing. So as you go approximately through 20 knots, you not only get that translational lift, but you also get the downwash off the wing, and, and she just flies, she just climbs. So the whole profile, takeoff profile, was, was orientated around trying to get to 20 knots indicated as quickly as possible. But we had the old airspeed system, so it wasn't very good below 20 knots. So you're just looking for a, a, a flicker on the airspeed. Um, the program started in Dallas, this part of the program, it's ended up in Italy because they had the new um, air data system fitted and they've got more accurate low speed. Uh, in, and in Cascina Costa and Vergiate, 
they, they have more days of zero wind, which is what you need for this testing. How do we make it better? Well, we've got the nacelles moving, so that helps to start off with. But once you've moved them to 75, of course, it's not at its most efficient because it's driving you forwards and, and you see in a lot of category A profiles, you stabilize at a speed and try and get the rotor horizontal to derive as much lift as you can to start accelerating away. But moving themselves has definitely helped us. We've got a moving power lever soft stop. So what does that mean? If any of you flown an IPS in a gazelle, then that's basically what we've got, except it's not fixed. So you pull the power lever up, collective if you will, and you feel a resistance at some point, which you can pull through to maximum power, but that's, that soft stop, as we call it, is, is set to deliver you maximum continuous power at whatever configuration you're in. And it changes. The, F, F, the flight control computer moves it around, depending upon uh, the configuration of the aircraft, whether we're OEI or not. So when you fail the engine during the critical point, you're up here at the soft stop using full power maybe, the engine will fail and, it, and the soft stop will drive you down to what the, what the maximum power that the remaining engine can produce is. And then you can then shift through 30 second, two minute, 30 minute power and the soft stop will move around as you do it. So that's been a huge benefit because no longer do you have to droop the NR like you do in many commercial helicopters to maximize engine delivery, engine power delivery. You just fly to the soft stop and you've got it. We've got some very clever flight control engineers, as I said, who've done a lot of work with the uh, optimal rotor RPM. So our rotor RPM changes as you fly. Now, that's common on, on the more modern helicopters where the rotor speed will automatically speed up as you fly away. But here it's looking at your uh, density altitude, it's looking at your configuration, it's looking at your airspeed and your rate of descent and putting it all into an algorithm which says the best road speed for this particular condition is 97%. And it will go to 97%. And then it will generally come back up again or it will go down again. Um, it's a bit off-putting when it decides to go from 99 to 97 because suddenly you get this NR droop and it, it takes a bit of getting used to. But it's... Um, it works really well, and we're getting, we get, we've seen a definite performance delta when we use it. And finally, I put SuperDroop in there. Um, you could argue that this is not an enhancement. The problem with using a flight control computer is that it's always trying to keep 100% or whatever the optimal RPM is. So that as you're coming down towards the ground on a rejected takeoff, you droop the rotor to cushion a touchdown, and absolutely nothing happens. Because the flight control computer says... No, you can't have it. There's no more power available. I don't care what you're doing with that thing. I'm just going to keep the rotors at 100%. So you hit the ground at whatever speed you have without this having any effect whatsoever. We quickly decided that this was not ideal and that we would like to use some of the energy that's stored in the rotor to cushion the touchdown. And so we had them put back in a droop facility, which we called super droop. It's not any more super than normal droop, but it is super when you've been flying without it for a while. And here's the profile that we came up with initially. This was at the end of the Arlington when we got into the windy season. This is how far we got. Now, if any of you have flown S-76s, you might recognize um, the profile. But basically, you're starting in the, in, we started in the hover. We did a 20-foot hovering point, and then we went down into ground cushion, and then we pulled full power, climbed vertically, hit a TDP of around about 50 feet, 
not necessarily exactly 50 feet, and that was our TDP. If, you, if the engine fails before that, you're going to reject. Optimal RPM is going to kick in. The rotors are going to stay wherever they are. Normally, we hover with the, with the, with the nacelles at 87, just for CG reasons, and uh, they're just more efficient at 87. And then you cushion the touchdown using SuperDroop. If you get past TDP before the engine fails, then you're going to fly that profile that you can see. Nacelles come forward to 75. You pull to the soft stop because that delivers a maximum amount of power and you fly away, aiming for 40 knots at the end for the first segment and second segment climb away, but trying to get to 20 knots because that's the cr critical point where the aircraft will just fly. So I've talked about the soft stop. It's always there. It's just like the IPS. It's always there, except it's not always at the same, same point. Um, and to that end, the, the, the top hard stop is not always at the same point as well, because though the hard stop is always there, it, it can mean something different, depending on what the FCCs want you to do. Um, and it adjusts automatically, as I said. So I've really covered all that already. And we talked about SuperDroop, and I've talked about optimal rotor RPM adjusting as you go. And it takes an awful lot of inputs to get there. So if you just run that video, this is one of the more challenging ones. This was a hot day in Dallas, uh, well above 16,000 pounds. So we're checking the, 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 the power there, and then we're going to come down to a low hover and pull immediately to the soft stop or to a delta torque figure to derive as much benefit from the ground cushion. The aircraft has quite a big ground cushion because of the high disc loading. Engine failure happens about there. The cells come forward to 75. We get an acceleration going to 20 knots. Then we rotate the aircraft to get the rotors close to the horizontal to develop as much lift as possible. And then we fly away and you'll see that the aircraft pitch attitude come forwards as we accelerate away. So that's the profile that we got to, and uh, we've developed it a little bit further since in that we've decided that we may be better off doing a jump takeoff. So not doing a power check in a hover, but actually just starting off on the ground wheels light and pulling straight through because we're getting so much benefit from the ground cushion. And then finally, I'll talk about all engines and operative testing. So certification basis, FAR, requires us to demonstrate that the aircraft can safely fly with all engines in operative. <laughs> So shutting down one and then shutting down the other and either gliding or auto-rotating. Uh, and it says the aircraft must be able to be converted to a safe landing configuration, bearing in mind loads and handling qualities issues. Now, if you think that the aircraft's going to spend most of its time as an aeroplane, that means we have to demonstrate that we can get from airplane to helicopter because we can't land as an airplane without doing severe damage. Um, it has to be to get from airplane to helicopter with both the engines failed. And it has to stay within certain rotor RPM limits. Uh, minimum rotor RPM was around about 75, so we tried to stay above 80. And then we probably are going to have to go and demonstrate a landing from an auto-rotation, which we haven't done yet. Tilt rotor auto-rotation history is um, pretty slim. The XV3 did one. Uh, XV15 did a conversion. They did half of one, didn't like it, but then went back and did a whole one and went, that's enough, and then they carried on. And the, the V-22 never really did. They did a couple of dem demonstrating they could bottom the power lever and shut the engine down in auto-rotation as a helicopter. And they also did a, a, a glide as an airplane, but they never went from one to the other. 
Um, the rotor heads in the crowd will have to uh, forgive me, uh, not for my PowerPoint skills, but for uh, covering auto-rotation refresher. Uh, basically, auto-rotation is airflow from underneath the rotor is going to keep the rotor disc spinning. I'll cover this because when I did this SCTP, when Shaky was there, uh, we had several people come up to us afterwards and said, I don't believe you. I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't believe that you can spin a rotor around by air coming from one end and from the other and it will turn in the same direction. So it happens in rotary wing aircraft all the time. Um, we have a, a sprag clutch just like you would in a helicopter that allows the rotor to turn faster than the engine so you're not trying to drag the engine along with you. Um, and those of you who've done the QHI course will recognize this diagram. Um, but basically, you've got airflow from underneath and the blade's still turning. The blade has to be turning, and those combined will give you a total force, which will give you a driving force with the air from underneath the rotor. Okay? And the green part of that disc is the driving, and the, the red and the blue is dragging. We've got quite a lot of twist on the prop rotor so that these, these areas are pretty well defined because of the... the the big twist in, in the prop rotor blade. Airplane, of course, flying through the air, just like a kid's windmill, it's going to windmill the prop rotors. But the prop rotor, honestly, does go around the same way, whether you've got airflow coming in the front as an airplane or whether you've got it back and going down like a helicopter. So there you go. In uh, box one, that's an airplane. That's where we knew we would have to go first. We'd have to look at the airflow coming in the front of the prop rotor and make sure that we could control the aircraft there. We knew that we'd have to go down to um, box three here. We'd have to demonstrate that we could auto-rotate the aircraft. And we were pretty happy that we could do both of those. The problem here is that, okay, airflow coming in the front turns, turns the prop rotor, airflow coming in the bottom turns the prop rotor in the same direction. What about when the airflow is on the edge of the, of the prop rotor? And then it's not going to work. All right? It's not going to keep turning it. So you've got to get, you've got to get through that area and you've got to get it through it as quickly as possible. And then finally, we knew we were going to have to demonstrate that we could do a flare just like a helicopter would at touchdown. And yeah, maybe we should try this in the sim first. So we did. We went in the sim for quite a long time before we actually started flying and did all of this and figured we got quite a good blade element model in the sim. Um, as I said, we got a lot of twist on the prop rotor blade, so we had to go to quite high definition, if you will, of blade element theory to get it to work. And it did work in a sim, but not necessarily great, um, which I'll come to in a minute. So the test strategy. Okay, so we're going to do this. Uh, where do we start? Um, well, if you think about HV or anything like that that you're going to do, you want to basically start where you know it's safe. And just like HV, in fact, you know, close to the ground, five feet off the ground, you fail, fail an engine in a single engine helicopter, you know you're pretty safe. If you go to 1,000 feet or 1,500 feet, you know you're going to be pretty safe. And that's basically what we did. So there's nothing new in the flight test Bible. We established the regions. If you look at the back screen, it looks really good. It's green on the back screen, but on this it looks gray, so I don't know. It's the projector. Um, and we tested there a lot to make sure that we had safe areas to go to. So if it all went wrong, that we could go to one or other end of that spectrum and we could be safe. And then we decided that we had to test a transition. So as I say, we did a build-up. We, we looked at engine reactions to condition lever changes, power lever changes, how, the, how they would fail, how they would come back up again if we needed to bring the engines back up. 
Um, so we did a lot of airplane from 20,000 feet or 18,000 because you're, you're IFR above 18,000. 18,000 feet, gliding down, shutting one engine down, shutting another engine down, starting the other engine up, starting the other engine down. We never actually shut them down. We're back, back at idle where they're not delivering power. How that worked. We also were worried about the flapping of the rotors. Of obviously, in airplane mode, they, the speed of the rotor is going to keep them rigid. And uh, we had to look at that as well. What are the, what are the flapping angles like, both in steady state and also during power applications? And we also wanted to make sure that this switch that we'd very rarely use, the 8 degree per second aft switch, as opposed to the 3 degree per second for the nacelles, would work and that we could consistently get it correctly and operate it. Uh, and then we went to uh, auto rotation. So we did windmilling and then we went to auto rotation. Um, in the windmill, we looked at 30 degree back turns. We needed to be able to demonstrate we could maneuver the aircraft. As it turned out, it was quite important that we could maneuver the aircraft in water in uh, windmilling and gliding effectively. We did it between 130 and 160 knots test points. We got the rotor RPM down pretty low um, and we also did the VTOL. So we, but we didn't convert from one to the other. We started off in helicopter mode, lowered the, lowered the power lever and then shut the engines down to make sure we could auto rotate. And having done all of that, all of those green area steady state conditions, we then looked at the transition. The steady state came up with this. So as you uh, increase your airspeed, you get quite a significant rotor RPM. And that's because you're getting closer to that edgewise flow. You're not getting the flow coming in underneath. And then we went and did the reconversion. So starting as a windmilling airplane and becoming an auto-rotating helicopter. We did a lot of simulator preparation. We, um, and then we, we went up there and basically in the simulator looked at doing it. And what we found is that we needed to get the edgewise, through the edgewise flow region as quickly as possible. We started off looking at pitch-up maneuver as the, uh, based upon airspeed, and we quick, quickly, quickly realized that airspeed was not a good um, number to choose to start this pitch-up to try and bring the nacelle through. So we ended up going to a nacelle angle indication. And we flew 28 test points with a pitch up at 60 degree nacelle. So you're there as a windmilling aircraft, you hit the emergency reconversion, the rotors come up, and at 60 degrees nacelle, you pitch the aircraft up to bring the rotors, to accelerate the rotors through that edgewise flow. Conclusions, um, that was a good thing to do. Uh, 140 to 150 knots, slowing to 70 knots was about the best profile. But interestingly, wing lift here is not, is not the pilot's friend. So you want to end up as an auto-rotating helicopter. And to be an auto-rotating helicopter, you have to have a rate of descent. The problem we found that was as we flared the aircraft, while the wing may have been through CL Max and therefore effectively stalled, of course, it's still producing huge amounts of lift. And we ended up with a rate of descent close to zero, which then meant getting back into auto-rotation was not difficult, but it, you had to make sure you got into auto-rotation reasonably quickly. I'm going to accelerate a bit because I'm going on a bit. Um, so here's the plots. Uh, we've got airspeed at the top. Uh, here's the cell angle moving at 8 degrees per second. Here's our rotor speed. The rotor speed starts at 84. We're at 84% in airplane. Um, so it automatically comes back up to 100 when you convert. And then here's the area that we're worried about where the rotor speed dips. Uh, here's the vertical speed. Now, interestingly, you, you heard what I said about wing lift not being the pilot's friend here. 
Here, we actually climbed at 100 feet per minute during the flare. So uh, that, was, that meant you had to get the aircraft, you had to basically try and get the aircraft moving downwards again as much as possible at the end of the manoeuvre. Same, same data point, uh, same nacelle angle, um, same rotor speed. Uh, this is the total flapping of the blade. Remember I said we were worried about the flapping. But here you can see the pitch manoeuvre that we did. So this is the actual angle of attack of the tip path plane. And this is the pitch manoeuvre at 50 nacelle that we, we had to do. Uh, 60 nacelle rather, that we had to do. And if you could just run that. So this is Dan and I um, mixing it with the 737s. Um, and what... There you go, those are the 737s. Um, and what, what I think is interesting here is Dan is a uh, Pax River graduate, I'm an ETPS graduate, and our flight test engineer who's test director is Timber from the United States Air Force. Uh, and he's a graduate flight test engineer. And we're going to start with a steady windmill, then we're going to convert, and we're going to end up in auto-rotation. Halfway through the data point, telemetry drops out, azimuth issues that we have with the aerial. And I'd just like you to hear, all Timber says is, stand by for telemetry or something like that. And I will turn the aircraft to get telemetry back, and then we continue with the data point. Can you turn it up a bit, Matt? Good engine. You'll also see me making a classic mistake. And Dan says, no windmill record, and I say, windmill record? No need for a steady windmill record this time. No need for a steady windmill record? No, they don't need one. So both engines are shut down. Or at idle. Stand by for signal. Lost telemetry signal. So you see me turn the aircraft, so it's a good job we tested 30 degrees angle of bank. Signal is back, continue. Okay, pitch check at 60 to sell. Data record. You ready? Yeah. Three, two, one, now. One hundred. One hundred. Dan's calling NR. One hundred. One hundred. One hundred. One hundred. Ninety-nine. Ninety-nine. Ninety-eight. Eighty-two. Eighty-one. Eighty. Looking good. Eighty-one. Eighty-two. Eighty-four. Eighty-five. I'm sure you are. I wasn't chuckling at the time. Eighty-five. Okay, and just stabilise it there. It's definitely coming back, isn't it? Let's yep. say ETL up, recover. Coming up. Launcher in auto, one good engine. And two good engines. And good response. And what I found interesting was that it took us very little time to get up to that kind of choreography. Um, with graduates of test pilot schools from around the world, we just basically dropped into something that worked for all of us, uh, including Timber on the uh, and flight test director seat in telemetry. We did some flare effectiveness, and uh, no surprise, we saw that we got to zero, so we, we're pretty confident we can get the, um, the rate of descent to zero. But we would be starting from about 90 to 100 knots. Uh, and that just shows that as well, with the rate of descent coming to zero for quite some time. So conclusions. Um, it, the 609 program is definitely reinvigorated. I, I, I took a personal punt going out to, 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 to the pro project. I had to take a punt on the, on the project, basically. Um, but everything I saw, I was convinced it was going to do big things, and I'm, I haven't changed my mind on that. But some very old and trusted flight test methodology has been used to test some very new and uh, innovative 
technology, difficult word to say. Um, we've got an exceptionally capable aircraft, and it's becoming even more so with the enhancements that I've talked about. Um, and the long and difficult gestation has really been beneficial, especially as being down in, in Texas, we've got the Bell guys who are still... Um, Augusta Westland has, re has retained Bell as consultants, basically, so we've got that foundation of flight test data. Um, a few lessons learned. To get a VD clearance at the service ceiling, you mean you're going to have to go higher, so it's always a good idea to try and get that clearance from the engine manufacturer before that. Um, the simulator, simulator is a hugely beneficial tool. We wouldn't have done half the stuff or got there as quickly anyway as we would without the simulator, but it's only approximately. Um, maintaining descent rates is important, so yeah, if you're going to get to being an auto-rotating helicopter, you have to be auto-rotating, i.e. descending. Um, and what stops that is that you're, you're still an airplane. You've still got a wing out there, which is creating lift even if you are past the stall point. Stall does not mean no more lift. And then finally, we did discover that it's illegal to park a tilt rotor in the Angel Stadium car park in Los Angeles. <laughs> and with that, I'll take any questions you may have. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.